listening to the Small Town Queer podcast produced by Tweed Regional Museum in northern New South Wales, Australia. Follow us as we uncover and explore Tweed's rich queer history from the early 1900s to the present. The museum has collaborated with LGBTQIA community members to collect, share and preserve the histories of Tweed's many and varied queer voices. to recognise the generations of local Aboriginal people of the Bundjalung Nation who are the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we are recording this podcast today. My name is Emma Shield. And my name is Erica Taylor and we are the curators of the Small Town Queer Digital Project and Exhibition. Hello. On today's podcast, we talk to journalist, radio broadcaster, documentary maker, sound artist and writer, Daniel Browning. Daniel is a descendant of the Bundjalung people of far northern New South Wales and the Kulili people of southwestern Queensland. He grew up at Fingal and has produced several documentaries on his ancestors and environmental issues there. He also presents Away on ABC Radio National a radio program which surveys contemporary Indigenous cultural practice across the art spectrum. Daniel also stars in SBS's Fab Original. Welcome, Daniel. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on the museum's first ever podcast series. <laughs> you and I met a few years ago um, and we worked on putting a little bit of your family story in the museum. And this is a whole different project, Small Town Queer. It is indeed. Um, we're just asking everyone, so our listeners have some context, how do you identify as a small town queer? Well, you know, I mean, this whole word queer has kind of been, um, you know, back when I first came out in the early 90s, uh, you know, I came out as a gay man and there wasn't really that much. There was a lot of queer theory happening happening at that time and I was at university and so I knew about queer theory but I've always felt like, um, you know, keep it simple for me. It's just that I'm, I'm, I'm a gay man but I'm also an Aboriginal man so I'm a saltwater guri from uh, Fingal. Uh, you know, well within the, you know, the, the purview of uh, the Tweed Regional Museum, hence my involvement with that, um, the, the history exhibits uh, at the museum and my family's part in, in local history. So yeah, Guri, Bundjalung man um, with strong ties to northern New South Wales or lower Tweed and to the Gold Coast. But yeah, you know, saltwater guri who saltwater guri who identifies as gay, queer if you like. I don't know. It depends on the day. <laughs> yeah. um, excellent. So you you grew up. Went. Tell us where you grew up. Um, my first childhood home was Fingal, and my family's been there for a very long time, and feel a very strong connection still with that particular place. Anyone who knows the Tweed will know what a beautiful little place Fingal is and how special it is. And, um, you know, we've lived on a, you know, that stretch of uh, Letitia Spit, the peninsula, the sand peninsula down there leading towards the mouth of the Tweed River for a very long time. And I grew up around generations. I was lucky enough to have a great, you know, several great grandparents alive when I was born. And I, you know, they continued on until, until I was in my 20s. Um, and generations of, you know, great, great aunts and great, great uncles who I remember very clearly. So I was very much embedded in that community in Fingal 
and it was very much still an Aboriginal community. It's now, you know, it's, you know, things have, things have changed. It's a different kind of place. And, you know, there are luxury homes there on the spit. But when I was growing up, it was just black families there, you know, Aboriginal and Islander families living there. So um, that was my first childhood home. And then from there, we moved to South Tweed. We lived in South Tweed um, on Kirkwood Road for a long time and another house on Kirkwood Road directly opposite the the um, the Tweed um, Aboriginal Museum, just near the very sacred Bora ground just there. And then um, we moved out to Cabarita. So, um, yeah, that's... I've always been local, but then I moved to Brisbane to go to university and then obviously now living in Sydney. For listeners who might not have hopped on the website yet, you've... You've written such a powerful, beautiful kind of piece, written piece about growing up around that area. So tell us a bit about how you felt growing up different in in that family, in that community. Yeah, I mean, I I think I talk about in the article about uh, having this sense of being different and not quite knowing what that is. I mean, when when you're real small, you don't know what it is because... It's something that you'll get to much later in your life. And I know that's changed for a lot of people. Um, You know, identity is something that people seem to work on much earlier. Um, I I just knew that there was something different about me and that it it would be wiser for me to keep that part of my identity a little bit of a secret. It's hard to imagine now. (laughs) Like... You know, we, we the closet was a real thing. It was like an iron cage. You did not, you could not penetrate that closet. It was, it was around you all the time. Um, and I guess when I moved out of home when I was 17 and moved to Brisbane to, to study at the University of Queensland, I started to kind of just realise that, you know, it's what you make it. it. It can be a cage. It can be something that kind of confines you for your life or you can just kind of not transcend it but you can you can kind of liberate yourself and that's kind of not possible in a small town well it's possible um but not when i was growing up not in the um the 70s and the 80s coming from the tweed you yeah you just didn't discuss your sexuality it wasn't a, a, a topic of discussion unless you were heterosexual, in which case, you know, you could <laughs> rub it in people's faces. So, and, you know, that has, a, that has an ongoing effect. I think it, it continues to have consequences in the way uh, our sexual identities play out. Um, it won't be so for the next generation and the generations after, hopefully, because they will be, they will have, they will have reached acceptance at a much earlier age. And I think that's what we're seeing. And that's fantastic. I just can't be dishonest and say that's how it was for me. No. And, you know, that echoes in a lot of other stories of participants on this project. And we all hope that maybe projects like this will help that next generation just go through that stage and those those processes a little bit easier. Well, that's the hope, isn't it? I mean, why why do we do these things except to kind of... Um, to let people know that I don't want to say it gets better. I just want to say, you know, it's not as bad as it seems. It's, it's, 
it's impossible to say that to someone who's experiencing extreme homophobia um, in the schoolyard or wherever, a workplace even. Um, but you, the, the, the kind of capacity that you have to uh, handle that kind of, you know, that kind of social pressure to be something that you're not, your capacity to handle those situations obviously gets better as you get older. You're just more used to it. But I want to be able to say to kids, if something's intolerable, you need to say something. If you're living, if, if, this, if your life is a living hell because of homophobia, racism or whatever, you need to be able to say to someone and for, have, for them to take you seriously. I don't know how many times, um, you know, I complained about being bullied at school. Um, and I don't know how many times my mother complained to the schools. But the attitude was that, you know, it just happens, you know, that's what kids do. And the cruelty of children is something that we're told to accept. But what about the cruelty of adults? Do we always accept this behavior? Do we, do we normalize it and say that it creates resilience? And is that enough? Do, do we simply put up with this kind of you know, it's deeply traumatic and the people, people know that bullying can have all kinds of impacts on a, the other person's psychological well-being and it, it continues to have uh, kind of reverberant effects over one's life. Yeah, you can silence it. You know, you, there's a lot of things you can do, but why do we always put the onus back on the victim? You know, like why is it our job to deflect um, the abuse of others. Yeah, that, that is a very good point. And um, it is the, you know, the behaviour and the things you see and go, you know, you don't say anything about is what you accept, you know, other people witnessing that. It's their roles to step in. It's everyone's role to step in when that behaviour is going on. Yeah, and I think, you know, just saying to someone, you need to have a, you need to put some steel in your back, or you need to be tough, or you need to be able to weather this kind of abuse. Sure, like, um, there are things that we do in, as human beings, we have to be held for our, we have to be held to account for our actions, the things that we do that perhaps cause others harm, or, um, you know, positions that we have to defend, you know, that we all have those things in our lives that we are going to cop, cop criticism, fair or unfair, for, for what we do. I just don't think being born <laughs> is something for which a person needs to be criticised unendingly. You know what I mean? Like, why do we tolerate that? And, you know, we are going to arrive at a place where it becomes so socially unacceptable to do that to people, that it's that it just it stops. If it doesn't stop, it becomes much less of a problem. And I, I can't speak for the you know the current generation or any generation since you know I grew up in the eighties, seventies, uh, and eighties. But what I think is happening is that it, the social unacceptability of homophobia is becoming is such that it it's less. Um, it's less likely to destroy someone, although I know it still happens. And depending on how small the town is that you come from, 
you're still going to cop criticism for just being being born, for being who you are and things that you can't change. And that's what we, we are exploring in this project is that small town situation and how it's different or the same to larger cities. You grew up, grew up in that Tweed, Fingal area and then, and then you moved to Brisbane. What happens when you get out of that, <laughs> that small pressure cooker type, type kind of situation into a city like Brisbane? Well, I mean, I, the, it was the best thing I ever did, kind of leave home. And, you know, it wasn't just leaving, physically leaving the Tweed. It was, you know, and I love my home. I love where I come from. I'm very proud to come from the Tweed. Um, at 17, when I left home, maybe I wouldn't have been able to say that. So, you know, um, confidently. Um, but when I moved to Brisbane, I kind of experienced, uh, that rush, you know, you do when you, when you are finally responsible for your own well-being and you, there's no one there to kind of look after you. You have to do it yourself. And that kind of in- sense of independence and freedom, um, is something that, you know, yeah, there's nothing like it. It's intoxicating and, but with that comes also this idea, you know, the fact is that you do have to look after yourself. You do have to be on your guard and you have to, you know, be circumspect to a degree. And in the early 90s when I lived in Brisbane and I moved there when in, you know, mid-1990 and, and stayed there until, you know, I spent the first year of my cadetship also in Brisbane. So I probably moved out in, you know... Um, early 1995. So I spent quite a chunk of my young life in, in Brisbane. Um, it wasn't that enlightened. You know, we always say that Brisbane's just like a big, <laughs> small town, a very big, small town. Well, it was like that, you know, and I, I would experience homophobia and, um, you know, kind of homophobic abuse. Um, that was not unusual. But you do kind of go in with a bit and you go, well, what can I do to kind of modify my behaviour so that I don't attract the attention of homophobes? Um, so that's what I had to do. I had to kind of, you know, just be um, be out and proud, but in a kind of, <laughs> uh, be, be circumspect about that. And I remember going to like, you know, um, protests about HIV AIDS. I mean, we were in the grip of the pandemic another pandemic, you know, HIV AIDS was, you know, ravaging communities. And this is like 1990, 1991. And, you know, to be visible and to be gay was still, you know, it was still tricky. Um, but like coupled with that was that sense of, you know, independence and, and that I was, whatever happened, I was going to be okay. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a, there were two things, yeah, that sense of independence, but it was also um, kind of a bit moderated by, you know, the fact that homophobia was still blatant and still something that you would have to, you know, that could threaten your life. And I know we all talk about Brisbane in terms of it's kind of a big, it's a big country town <laughs> in a way, right? says that. So, um, did you find any difference when you moved from you moved from Brisbane to Sydney, at some stage? Yeah, of course. I mean, it was much more, um, you know, it was. I mean, I can't remember it feeling particularly different, 
that I know it was. Um, I just can't kind of recall the, the, you know, how different or in what ways it was different. Certainly it was a much more liberated life and it, it is a much more liberated life, I would say. But still, you know, Sydney's not what it, it seems to, um, to other people. Sydney has, there's still homophobia. As long as we have homophobia, there will be, um, the problem will kind of continue to be um, one that we have to kind of, we have to kind of grapple with um, the circumstances around, you know, being totally open and totally honest with who you are and and being not not just um, accepted, but kind of celebrated for that. Um, th- that those that situation we haven't reached that point in in in, in human history. I don't think. Um, so there's still there's still things to be negotiated. There's still kind of um, a contract that you make with society to um, to kind of fit in. We all do it. Everyone fits in in a different way. Um, but we're still kind of trying to be, we're, we're still trying to fit in. Um, yeah, Sydney is a fantastic place and I've lived most of my adult life here. But like I said, I, I still do think there there is a way to go. Uh, yeah, and do you, did you find, do you find um, maybe easier to find, you know, a sense of community in the in the cities? We're just talking to a lot of our participants who have moved, done the opposite of you. They didn't grow up here. They've moved, moved here in their older years and struggling to find that sense of community that we, we get an inkling that may be easier to find in the larger cities. Yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the idea. And I think that, in, you know, notionally that is true, that you're going to find more people who accept you for who you are in the city just on this on the numbers like the the likelihood of it uh, increases because there are more people you know the north coast is 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 you know the home of the radical fairies and um and you know tropical fruits and people who do that reverse thing of not coming not being from the far north coast but then finding community there um, in ways that I, you know, I couldn't have found in when I grew up, and I think that's fantastic. It it, sh- it it's provided a kind of um, a safe harbour in, in many ways, and that's how it should be. There sh- there should be somewhere on the continent where um, outside of the cities and outside of the kind of you know just within the kind of outer reaches of the cities where acceptance can be found. And I keep talking about acceptance, and I think that's like you know it's also it's acceptance for me is is acceptance came for me when I, my family accepted me that was the most important thing and you only come out really to your to your, well in my case i only came out to my family one and once i came out there that was my coming out like the rest of society i couldn't give i couldn't give a rats you know like i had come out and that was the most important people in the world knew and that's that's that it's the it's the it's out there and you know Everything after that is kind of a bit of a walk in the park, really. Um, so yeah, I think it's fantastic that you know the far north coast is is a more accepting place for some people, and those little pockets of communities that seem to have to, to be more accepting, perhaps because they've been populated by people who have have done that journey, have come from the cities to find 
you know, a kind of happiness and, and peace um, in in that beautiful country. I mean, there's something about the country. It has a special power. Um, and I say that as a black man, but I say that also as a, as, a, as a person who, you know, can objectively feel how special it is. So, uh, you know, I do think that's great that, that, that there are communities that spring up, um, communities that accept each other and, you know, there might not be broad acceptance or, but as I say, you know, the, 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 the tide has kind of turned. It's a completely different world from, from when I was growing up. And the social unacceptability of homophobia is is really what has changed that game for 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 many of us, and it means that we can live with relative ease in in small um, and large communities. What does it mean to you to be queer and Aboriginal? I've thought about this, and I I I do think that they they're kind of indivisible in a way for me both my they're both part of who who I am so it's very hard to go oh how does it feel to be this and then to bring it bring it all in together it kind of just is and I was it's not a very satisfactory explanation but it just is I, I can't really imagine being any other way I can't imagine um not being queer and Aboriginal. It's just, it just is how it is. But I do think about them in relation to each other. And I do think about how does one inform the other or not, or are they, is there a conflict between being queer and being Aboriginal? Of course there isn't. I mean, um, I don't, I don't feel that there is. In fact, the, the deepest acceptance I have is from, um, you know, Aboriginal women, um, and you're not just the women in my in my family, but more broadly, the essay that I wrote for Small Town Queer about, you know, this rearing army of wild and sedate black women who kind of had my back and always kept my back. Well, I would say that you know I've had you know just my 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 you know Aboriginal friends who are women also. Um, keep my back over the years so you know there might be blackfellas who who don't who who are, who are actively homophobic um, but I would say that homophobia is no more um, no more of a problem than in the wider community um, but I do think you know there's work to be done there to to kind of to, to, to kind of broaden our acceptance, I would say it's just a, it's a masculine thing. It's a macho kind of heterosexist kind of thing to pretend that, um, that there's some threat in the sexuality of others. I mean, and, and heterosexism and, um, toxic masculinity finds problems with the sexuality of, of basically everyone who isn't <laughs> toxic and masculine. So I don't take anything from it. I just think, you know, I am queer, I am Aboriginal, and there isn't really anything. Um, I'm not at war with myself over that. It just is who I am. And, you know, it just is. I know it's a really unsatisfactory answer, but they, they just, 
they just go together for me and they go together in my person. They go together in my actions. And, you know, there's a really famous quote from, you know, the Aboriginal artist, um, well, the international artist Tracy Moffat, who says, if I bake a cake, is it Aboriginal? And that kind of level of detail at which you, 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 your actions and who you are is either Aboriginal or queer is something for you to decide. But I, I think, you know, in the end, you are a human being and the way you live out your life um, is as a human being um, and your identity is very much part of that. But you don't go into everything you do and say, as a queer Aboriginal man, my position on this is this or that or that. It just is. It's just you. Yeah. It's a beautiful. It's a beautiful answer. <laughs> it's just. It's. But it doesn't actually answer the question. No, it yeah. doesn't. But not all questions need an answer. No, no, no. It was something beautiful in that this country has provides this safe space since the seventies, since the Aquarius Festival, um, has provided this safe space for this community to move here. And it's all kind of embedded in the landscape somehow. I would say that, you know, we often think that country doesn't have agency or that it doesn't have um, identity, but country does. Like our country, Bunjalung country, the lower Tweed, the far north coast, Tweed Heads, the, the, the river itself, all, the, all those places have agency. And I was talking to... Um, Nadi Simpson, who's written this extraordinary book called Song of the Crocodile about not our country, but, you know, Uralari country, um, northwestern New South Wales. And she talks about how, well, in, there's, a, there's about how places know people. Places have agency. Places remember. They know you and they treat you like they know you. If we just think that there is some, um, not sentience, because that's like, there is something about country that welcomes us, and I feel that um, every time I come home. Um, so, yeah, just giving country the kind of space and the room to breathe and to allow country to take care of you, it's a real kind of embedded, um, gory way of seeing the world, but it's, it is true country does take care of people it always has and that's what I feel when I'm there now when I'm at home um and I can't but I can't feel it every day so but I it's 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 sudden and it's instant when I get off the plane in Coolangatta <laughs> pre pre um COVID um or when I land in Ballina uh, I instantly feel kind of just a sense of relief you know like I'm I'm back where I belong and and country does that that's amazing and it's, it's something that's been echoed in our interviews with men that moved here in the 70s and 80s and when I ask them why here, no one can really tell me that just that it's this place is healthy and it feels good and it's somewhere they've come to find health and, and peace. And it's you can feel it. Like you can, if you spend enough time in a toxic environment, or if you spend enough time um, in a city, and you're surrounded by things that you know, are inherently unfamiliar. I mean, I remember when I first moved to Sydney, um, 
I just was overwhelmed, overpowered by the stench of the city. Now I can't smell it. But when I came, when I came here, I was just like, this place really stinks. Um, it's bizarre, but it's kind of like, a, it was a sensory thing rather than actually stinking. Like it was a, this sense that this isn't really, this is not familiar to me and I don't know this smell. Um, but as you kind of become more kind of inured to, to the difference, you, you don't see it anymore or you don't smell, you don't perceive it. But when I go home, I'm always reminded of the things that I know like the smell of the salt air, um, the smell of the bush, the smell of the morning, the smell of um, the trees, um, all those things that are familiar to me because I know them, are the sound of the birds, um, the drone of the ocean, um, they're all those things you have a memory of, um, they're familiar. Um, but yeah, there is something really welcoming about where we come from. It's, it has w always welcomed me home and I've always felt kind of a peace and a calm that you don't feel, you just don't feel it anywhere else in the world. And I'm good that I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to know that other people who, who aren't from where we're from also experience that objectively. Um, it's not just something that we think because we come from there. You know, bias. Oh. You know, we're all biased. Yeah. <laughs> we're all biased. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel, is there anything you're working on um, you'd like our listeners to know about? Yes, there's something kind of happening up on the coast, which is pretty important, and that's the the, the bleach festival. And this year, I'm one of the artists. It's the first bleach festival I've ever been involved in, and you know, the bleach. You know, bleach is that Gold Coast festival. Um, and but really kind of also i really feel that there's a sense of northern new south wales also being present and for for us blackfellas the border was kind of a bit porous the border the border between um queensland and new south wales is is um a border but um you know our ancestors traversed that border uh fairly easily uh for generations so i've been invited to um kind of will compare and host some sessions at the um, First Nations hub at Burley for the Bleach Festival um, and in the, on the opening weekend of the Bleach Festival. And the first person I'll be speaking to is my grandmother, who's, um, who grew up um, in what is now Surface Paradise. Born in 1918, and she's 102 in December, and she's certainly one of the oldest people from Surface Paradise or from that part of the world still alive who can recall what it was like before it is now. So before all the concretes and, you know, she just describes bush, you know, but there was bush everywhere. Um, and she's got some ripping yarns about growing up there and, um, you know, living through the Depression. And she was born at the end of the First World War but lived through uh, the Second World War. And, you know, in these times of COVID and the pandemic, you know, we think that we're living through unprecedented times. But I would say that, you know, if you talk to someone like my grandmother, you kind of put it all, you can put it all into perspective. So just listening to her talk about change and, um, you know, change that is frightening. Um, you don't have to be frightened because there are people among us, our elders, who've, who've lived through situations like this and remembering the flu pandemic the the spanish flu um epidemic um that also 
cost people their lives here in Australia. And many returning servicemen um, were on boats that couldn't couldn't dock because there was an outbreak of Spanish flu on board those ships. And these men have just gone through four years of war and then all of a sudden they're, they're on a boat and they can't leave and they can't be reunited with their families after the war has been declared at an end. So the guns fall silent and they're still kind of living on these boats and all going through quarantine. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I'd like to, you know, really, really say is that the knowledge um, and the kind of perspective that we need on on chaos and on global events um, is already in our communities. We just need to ask those old fellas. We need to get them talking and, and, and hear what they have to say. So, and my grandmother's a perfect example. Oh, that's going to be a very, very special, special event. So I hope people can get along. Um, Daniel, thank you so much for sharing your story with us and um, and we'll, we'll leave it there. Pleasure. And thank you so much for doing this, for deciding to um, create this exhibition. It's There's so much need to tell these stories and um, I'm so glad that the, the Tweed Regional Museum um, undertook it. It's a real a real risk, but, you know, congratulations to, to you and to to your team for, for doing this. Thank you for listening to the Small Town Queer podcast. To hear more Small Town Queer stories, subscribe to the series and like, share and review this episode. And check out the Small Town Queer playlist on Spotify, curated by museum staff and project participants. For more information about Small Town Queer, visit museum.tweed.newsouthwales.gov.au forward slash small hyphen town hyphen queer. Tweed Regional Museum is supported by the New South Wales Government through Create Funding New South Wales. This project would not have been possible without the support and collaboration of the people of Tweed who have generously shared their lived experiences, archives and objects with this project.